<laughs> Thank you, Confirm. Welcome again to today to another Sunday that's never happened before. <clears throat> we have a lot of sickness in our family this weekend. I kept getting um, texts all day yesterday about not being able to make it to the St. Patty's Day party last night, and that was sad, although a bunch of people showed up that hadn't RSVP'd, so that kind of equaled things out, so we had a good time. Still have a potato soup hangover, but I'll be okay. The green beer never showed up. I, don't, I guess you have to assign someone if you want green beer to show up. So. But the potato soup was awesome and everything else. So thanks for coming, those of you that were able to make it. Um, but we do have some, yeah, some people out, but I see some faces I don't recognize. So if you're new, welcome. Please let, uh, introduce yourselves to me before you take off. It's good to have Lee's wife, Irma, here this morning. Welcome to Irma. Lee's been hanging out with us for about a month so far, so it's good to see them. Um, also, the McKinneys are here for their final Sunday, so we need to love on them and pray for them and give them hugs and bless them as they uh, head to Alaska. Rich has been up there for seven months weekly without family, so praise God for a wife and children who are going to be with you every day, <laughs> as it's supposed to be. But yeah, make sure that you, you say goodbye to them as well. All right, today is our third Sunday on this topic of the New Covenant, and so um, I hope that you're remembering and thinking through and reading through what the Scriptures say about the New Covenant. The New and Old Covenants are very different, and we, a lot of times, actually don't live in the differences. We tend to get them confused, and so we find ourselves still living out of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant had a lot of law, a lot of rule, and the point of all the rule was to give people who did not know necessarily what right and wrong was a, a wonderful set of principles by which to love one another well within a community. And so there were dietary laws and civil laws and religious laws. And all of the laws were, were it's like if you were going to play a game and you wanted the game to be fair for everyone and everyone to win, then there's a certain way to play the game. That's kind of what the law was, was a way to live life that if you followed it, would, everyone would flourish. Everyone would do well financially, physically, in so many ways. In the New Covenant, um, things are very different. Uh, there are proverbs and principles and wise things that we can do, but God gives us a tremendous amount of latitude depending on the context we live in. So Jesus said the point of the entire law was love. Now, we may not understand that because a lot of the laws that were written were written specifically for the historical time in which those people were living. So when a proverb says, do not boil a calf in its mother's milk, we're kind of like, what? What does that mean? In that context, in the land of Canaan where they were going to go, that made a ton of sense. It was a practice that was going on there. And in God's mind, to have um, an animal be cooked in what was meant to nourish it was, was not a good thing. It was kind of perverse, and so that's why that was in there. Today, that doesn't really make sense for us. It doesn't apply to us, but there's a lot that does. But we are free from the law. So here we go, teaching the scriptures under the new covenant. The old covenant, in the old covenant, the people of God uh, reviewed the promises of God that were attached to, uh, let me say this again. When people in the Old Testament unrolled the scrolls and read the Bible, to them, it was kind of a to-do list. It was a lot of ways to live in everyday life. And so when they opened the scriptures, their question was, how should I live? Under the new covenant, uh, it's quite a bit different. It's more like a packing list. So you know when you get a box, Amazon shows up or FedEx, and on the top there's tape this packing list. 
and you pull it off and you open it up. And in, on that list is everything that's in the box. And that is really more what opening the Bible should be like for you and me. When you open the Scriptures, you're kind of finding out, what am I going to learn today about what I have received from God? So if you open your Bible and you have this sense of, what should I obey? You're actually living still under kind of an old covenant mindset. The new covenant mindset is, what are God's promises to me? What is he giving me today? In the Holy Spirit, in faith, in love, in grace, in gifts. And so that's what we're looking for. So one passage of scripture that we're rooted in today, 2 Timothy 3.16, 4 and 5. And I have to be honest with you, I knew this was the right passage because I prayed about it, and so you always know you have it right when you pray about it. But I read through it, and it was kind of heavy. And uh, my first response was, I don't think this is the right passage because of my own heart in response to it. But as I read it and prayed about three days later, I read it again with some new eyes. The Spirit gave me some help, and I went, oh, okay, okay. This is the right passage, and here's why. So my hope is to share with you that revelation that I had. So let's read. Paul, writing to his primary um, disciple as a, as a leader in the church, uh, his life is coming to an end, and so he's leaving his, his protege the best that he has. And this is one of the things he says. He says, all Scripture is breathed out from God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, and remember, he's just writing to Timothy, so he doesn't, he's not inclusive here, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off to myths. Now, you know that we're living in a culture where ideas like correction and reproof are not well received. Um, criticism is very unpopular right now. Being told where we're failing is not something we're open to. In our PC culture, this is like, wow, that's just offensive. That's old-fashioned. That's Old Testament. Why do you talk to me that way? And that's, that's what I initially thought of as I read the passage, and I struggled with that. I thought, God, is this really where you want me to go? But he really helped me understand what a new covenant view of reproof, correction, and training in righteousness is. So I want to share that with you. But first of all, let's finish studying this passage together. Kevin, would you move us on? Thank you. So what I have done here is what I see in this passage in the most simple overview is that there's process here for growing as Christians and the process or the words are in blue. And then there are specific outcomes. Oh, I'm sorry, those colors don't work as well for you as they do for me. Then there are outcomes which are in green and then there are counterfeits which are supposed to be in orange. <laughs> so I'll point them out. So here's the process. He says, as a leader, Timothy... As you are working with a congregation, as you're working with the church, as you're working with the people of God, here's the process. Teach, reprove, correct, train in righteousness, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, I went to the Greek to find some different meanings of those words because they're also negative, and in the Greek, they're equally negative. So, 
No bother with the Greek. We're just going to stick with English. The outcomes of this process are up in sentence number three there, or line three, be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's, that's easy to embrace. Yes, I want to be complete. I want to be equipped for every good thing that I could do in the name of Jesus. So that's good. And then at the bottom here, we have counterfeits. It says, for in the times that are coming, people will have itching ears. So they'll, they'll want to hear things that satisfy their curiosity. They'll want to be dazzled. They want to have itching ears. Things that suit their own passion. So people will want to be told what they want to hear and not what they may need to hear. And they will even give in to myths, so speculations, things that aren't true. And he's saying, let's stay away from the counterfeits, but let's stick with what is true and right. So how do we talk about this? Well, I would start with this sentence. On the next slide, I put, everything is upside down and backwards. I had a friend, his name was Gary, and we were a part of a church for a while. And... Uh, Gary was a contrarian. So just about anything you would say, Gary would say, no, I don't think so. I think it's the opposite. That was really irritating. Uh, I had to really be gracious and just kind of receive that because pretty much everything that I said or others said as well, he would say to the contrary. But one of the realities that actually Gary was reflecting is a lot of times we think we know something, but actually in the kingdom of God, it's just the opposite. And if you go through the Gospels, you'll find uh, people saying things to Jesus, and he actually said, no, it's actually not like that. It's the opposite way. So things like, you know, if you really want to be respected and known as a leader, then you need to serve everyone. And that's an opposite. That's not what the Roman soldiers and the Roman leaders were doing. They were demanding respect, and they were wielding power. And Jesus said, actually, it's upside down and backwards in the kingdom of God. So what I want to do with you is walk through five different topics that uh, can help us see this reality. Things are one way in the world, and the world works that way. The kingdom of God is exactly the opposite, and it's upside down from that. So what does reproof, correction, and training in righteousness look like when everything is upside down and backwards? It looks like letting go of old ways of thinking and embracing new ways of thinking that are often the opposite of what we used to be familiar with in the world. Here are some examples. So our first example is leadership. So I just I made a general principle that we find it was true in the time of Jesus and Paul, and it's true today. The leader should be the most respected one in the room and should be served by everyone else. Now, we know that's, that's true in ancient times. Uh, when you went into a banquet, you kind of knew what your status was. You knew where you landed in a relationship to the host. So if you were well-respected, if you were a teacher or a Pharisee or a scribe, you got to sit close to the host. And if you were, uh, well, a slave wouldn't even be invited to the table. But if you were someone who wasn't well-received or didn't have a lot of authority, then you would sit at the low end of the table. Jesus turns that upside down in John 13, on the night that he was betrayed. After Judas left the room, he said this. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. In other words, I am the leader in this room. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. So the upside down principle in the new covenant is the leader should respect everyone in the room and serve everyone. Now tell me, is there a situation in your, 
in your life, maybe where you work or in your home or in your family, where the principle at the top is the case? And if so, what, what does that look like? Where is it true that the leader in the room is the one that kind of expects respect and everyone else serves that one? Military. In the military, yeah, absolutely, right. Any other examples of that? Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Hey, your dad's coming home. Quickly put that away and wash your face and be quiet and turn off the TV. Right. And that's just it. These are the cultures that are around us, and they are, the cultures teach us what's right and wrong. And even though inside we might feel like, ah, this feels awkward, but this is the way we do things, and so we do things that way. Jesus comes into the middle of that kind of a culture, and he turns it upside down. So that's what he does here. And you know, with the disciples, they were wanting that respect. That's why it's such an awkward moment where James and John's mother, now these are adults, and yet... Their mom goes to Jesus, the rabbi, and then she makes this interesting statement. She says, I want you to do what I ask you to do. And basically what she does, she's asking for a yes before she asks the question. That's a strategy that your kids might use. Like on, on um, you know, October 1st or November 1st, mom, I'm going to ask you for something, and I want you to say yes before I tell you what it is. And you know it's going to be, can I finish all my Halloween candy today? And so that's the kind of thing that was happening. And what, what was asked for was that James and John would be able to sit with Jesus when he ruled in authority on his left and right. So those were the highest human positions you could have. They were still under this old idea of we will be the most respected in the room and everyone will serve us. That's why Jesus does this tremendously uh, radical thing of washing their feet. And they had no idea, oh, Jesus, what are you doing? You're doing the work of a servant. And he said, I know. Because leaders in my kingdom, where it's upside down, should respect everyone in the room and serve everyone in the room. All right, let's look at another scenario. This is under the idea of righteousness. So in general, I think we understand righteousness is right behavior. So a righteous person is someone we would have a hard time uh, condemning or saying anything bad about because in all of their conduct, they do it well. They do the right thing. If we were giving them a grade as a human being, we'd give them an A+, because they are righteous. But in the kingdom of God, it's actually not like that. And Jesus taught this very clearly and solidly in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, part of which is in Matthew 5, where he said this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool or you idiot, will be liable to the hell of fire. And what Jesus taught about adultery and about murder and about breaking oaths and about marriage was this. It's upside down in my new kingdom. Righteousness is about right motives in hearts toward
towards one another. And what he was aiming at here was the law was a way to manage behavior, but it really did nothing for the heart of a person. It just said, here's right actions. I want you to live under right actions. And Jesus is saying, my father wants more than right actions. My father is after a right motivation. So if the motivation is there, I don't even want to see the actions. I'm just looking for sincerity and honesty and integrity. What matters to Jesus and to the Father and to the Spirit is actually what's going on in the heart. So our actions could be kind or nice, but our motives could be totally false. And Jesus would say, that's not what I'm after. So righteousness is about motives in our hearts. All right. Personal fulfillment. Again, upside down in the kingdom of God. Upside down under the new covenant. Fulfillment to us in our culture today, you are your own provider. Your first concern is for yourself. And I think we even use this, these terms in the Christian world, and we would say it like this. <clears throat> you can't love others until you love yourself. Now, that's actually true in one way, but it's also very false in another way. And where it's false is when we kind of say, I'm going to spend all of my energy and all of my effort and all of my money until I get myself where I want to be. And then once I get there, then I'll turn around and be generous. Once I get to a certain place in life where I've got it together for myself, then I'll see if I actually have time for others, I have money for others, I have energy to give to others. And so there's this tendency in our culture to say, do I have everything that I need? That's what comes first in my mind. I remember hearing a story of a missionary... um, And the missionary was an indigenous person from Africa. And I can't tell you the background of the story, but here's what hit me in the story. They said, uh, my village was starving, and my friends and I were really hungry, and I was walking through the jungle, and I came across a banana. And so I'm thinking immediately, oh, wow, I bet he peeled that thing and and ate it immediately because he was so hungry. And he said, no, what I did is I took that banana, and I ran back to my friends, and I had four friends, and I opened it up, and together we shared it. And I thought, wow, now that was the right thing to do, but the tragedy was what my thought was. Well, I'll bet he just grabbed that thing and scarfed it down because he was starving. My mindset was kind of take care of yourself first. And his mindset was take care of everyone uh, equally and share with one another. Here's the scripture that Jesus gave us. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the people without God, Seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But, by contrast, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. So again, in the new covenant, it's upside down. God is my provider. Your first concern is for others. And basically, what what Jesus is telling us here is trust your Father. Yes, you have needs, but trust him. He knows what they are, and he's going to take care of you. And as you trust him to take care of you, you will be free to take care of others. And I would say that, like, for me, this isn't so much about food and clothes and shelter. Those things are fairly in the right place. But for me, it's around emotional needs. It's around confidence. It's around affirmation. That's my place of poverty and and hunger for me is to be affirmed and to be known that I'm secure, that I'm who I should be. And I can tend to use situations, relationships, even this platform here, you know, to talk to you hoping you'll affirm me and tell me I'm a good teacher. And, you know, that's upside down from where it should be. 
God is saying, Rick, I've called you to do this. I've equipped you to do this. I love you. Your needs are full. Don't worry about what others think. But instead, when you stand up in front of people, share your heart and pour out the truth. Don't worry about yourself. And don't you find in situations you have certain relationships where you engage in them because you need them. You need the affirmation. I've watched uh, people mentor other people. And you can see in that relationship, the mentor is actually the one who's kind of bleeding with need. They're looking for affirmation. They're looking for that mentee to tell to them, hey, you're important. I need you. You have good things to say to me. Here's how you know that that's true. If you have an appointment with a mentee and you're at the coffee shop and they don't show and you get upset, uh, I think you have to ask yourself, why am I so angry right now? And one of the answers could be because I had a need I thought was going to be met in this hour. Uh, And maybe this is subconscious and you wouldn't think this out loud, but honestly in our hearts we're thinking, I was going to get some affirmation today. I was going to be reminded that I'm needed and I'm wise and I'm important. And they didn't show, and I'm not going to get that now. So I think this is a good way to test ourselves. What is our motivation? Is it for my own needs or is it for the needs of others? One more, identity. And this has to do with our identity before God in regard to Holiness in regard to, to um, being acceptable or not acceptable to God. So, a common identity I'm hearing from people today is, you are guilty of sin and don't deserve anything good. I'm just a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. I'm just broken and dirty. There's nothing good in me except Jesus. And I would say to you, if that's the way you operate, you are not understanding the new covenant because Jesus re-identifies us very differently, and that's not the way he identifies us. Just one example in Colossians 1. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, here's the new identity, holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. Holy, altogether different, blameless. I can't blame you for anything. You have no guilt. Above reproach, you are innocent. And then in Romans, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also (coughs) with him graciously give us all things? So Jesus turns it upside down in the New Covenant and says, you are innocent, and your innocence has been restored through Jesus, and you have been given every good thing by the Father. And that's the New Covenant. That's a New Covenant identity. That's embracing everything that God has done. And to be honest with you, my friends, if we don't believe that, we are saying that Jesus' work, the life that he lived, the death that he died, the resurrection that he experienced were minimal. And all they did was get me in the door and get me saved from hell. If we believe and live out what you're reading up there at the top, we're saying it was just enough to get sad, horrible me into heaven. And you know that's not true. We don't agree with that. What Jesus did was tremendously powerful. It was effective to take care of every sin. There's power enough there to overcome every weakness. And we are called to live into, not just in the future, after we die and go to heaven, but right now we're to live into holiness and blamelessness and to be above reproach. And obviously not in pride, 
but in gratitude and in thanksgiving because Jesus makes us capable. And again, Old Covenant, we would say that you're going to do that by discipline and working hard and reading things on your mirror. They're going to tell you, be nice today, be kind today. The New Covenant says that's not the way it happens. The way that it happens under the New Covenant is you get up in the morning and you say, Father, thank you for refreshing me. Fill me again with your Holy Spirit. I want to walk like Jesus walked. I want to be free from pride. I want to be free from fear, and I thank you that I can be. And right now, God, I just receive your Holy Spirit to give me confidence, give me kindness, give me patience, give me the fruit of your Holy Spirit. God, enable me today to be the person that I want to be and that you created me to be. Thank you for the Spirit. Jesus, thank you for your death and resurrection that make this possible. And I just surrender you today to live in the strength of your Spirit in Jesus' name. That's new life. That's new covenant. Not discipline, but the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I just want to stop here and, and give chance for any interaction or questions that you have right now. Any reflection or question? Consuela? Yep. Yeah. Great question. Yeah, discipline is a bit of a bridge between these two realities. <clears throat> the reality of um, I'm weak and can't do this and the reality that God has fully equipped me to do this. We, we can't go from one to the other immediately and directly. There isn't just a Jekyll and Hyde kind of reality. So disciplines can be tools that help me practice what I believe I could do if I just let the Spirit do it in me. It's a little bit like teaching a child to say thank you and you're welcome and please when they don't really feel it and don't intend to. It's a discipline we give them knowing that they will grow into it hopefully soon enough. <laughs> and if they don't grow into it, I would say probably by junior high, they ought to stop saying those things because uh, at that point they're just, yeah, they're just insincere and hypocritical. Yeah, good question. But I think we overdo spiritual disciplines when we put hope in them and say when I am acting disciplined, I'm acting righteous. When I'm in disciplines, I'm trying to practice what I truly believe about who I am in Christ. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Kevin. Right. Yes, eternal life has already begun. We have to define eternal life by more than life that goes on forever. Eternal life is actually a quality of life. It's a life where the spirit exists and where life as God intended it to be happens. And gra it happens gradually over your lifetime, but it ought to start once you receive Jesus and be ever increasing from glory to glory, as the scriptures say, as we grow. So it's definitely a process, but the process is possible. From the time you were born until you receive Jesus and are filled with the spirit, your life is probably generally devolving in its quality. And the, you're becoming less and less innocent, more and more guilty, uh, more and more confused, less the person you want to be. And hopefully when we meet Jesus, that process is reversed. And we begin to become more of the person I want to be. We find more strength to be the person we want to be. And that's what resurrection is all about, an eternal life. When we're baptized, we're dying to the way we were living, and then we're raised to a new way of life. All right, one more place I want to apply this. 
we've been talking about what we do on Sundays when we gather and just trying to remind ourselves of what can be worship and singing and teaching. And, and, and the goal is to help us step into that well, uh, especially as Easter comes. So I would say this is where we get lost. Sometimes we think in worship and in a worship gathering, the central focus is on the stage. And what we're looking for is quality and inspiration here. Those that lead worship, those that teach and share, that, that that's the main thing that's happening. And this is a human way of looking at things. This is looking at church, at worship as um, there's an audience and then there's performers. And I know we would all say, no, I would never believe that. But we have to be careful because we still practice it somewhat. So we get into this idea of I'm going to visit a church until I find what happens on stage the way I love for it to happen. So is it the kind of worship I can relate to and resonate with? And is the teacher someone I can trust? Or do I think that they're a good teacher because I'm going to go here regularly and I'm going to sit as a participant, I mean as an audience, and the focus will be on the stage. And I wouldn't disagree with you that what we do here is important and it should be quality and it should be something that resonates with you, but that's not the end goal. And if it is, it's, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> and I've been a part of trying to do that well, and I'm so glad that God is freeing me from that. Under the new covenant, in true worship, the central focus and delight of the Father is what's going on in the seats. So are you guys familiar with an orchestra pit? So there's a stage generally in a concert hall. It's pretty deep. And the, uh, the play or the musical or the drama happens there. And down below here where you really can't see very well, there's an orchestra pit. And that's where all the direction is happening. And that's where support music is coming from. But the real drama, what we really came to watch is what's on the stage. And down below is just what supports. And I would give you that picture as what Peter and Kale and Consuela and anyone who leads here myself and Derek and Jonathan uh, and Tony, as we teach, we are in the orchestra pit. And our goal is to support and direct you because we know what the Father is watching is actually this. So during singing and prayer, the Father's waiting to receive your worship and your heart and your expressions, not just these three here. They're actually here just to inspire you to give you a tempo, to give you words, to give you kind of a, a mood. But what the Father waits for is for this right here, for this to happen. The Father's waiting for every soul in the room to be agreeing with the same words and expressing with emotion. And he's waiting for this to happen. That's what he wants. And even during teaching, what, he, what he's really watching is, is what are you receiving right now? And what are you thinking? And how is this shaping or equipping or inspiring you? What thoughts are you thinking? Because what the Father is watching for is growth and worship and new hope in you as those that are interacting and listening and not as much on me. Your eyes are a little bit on me, but his eyes are completely on you. And he's watching to see what happens with you. It's hard to stay in that place because culturally we shift back and forth into that other place. But I, I ask you, as we move forward here as Colossae Sherwood, in this year of worship and teaching and prayer, that we make a good solid shift away from secondary things and that we turn things upside down the way that they're supposed to be so they're actually right side up. What, what I 
am focused on is not providing an excellent Sunday experience for the people of Sherwood to come see. What I am focused on is a family of people who are genuine and honest and maturing and kind and hospitable and learning and growing and shining brighter every week as the human beings that they are with children who are going in the same direction. Because what what I want to offer the city of Sherwood and, and the cities around us is you as lights uh, showing this world that God is good and that God is good in you. Uh, my goal is not to create a place where you can invite your friends and we have a great experience on a Sunday. It's easy to go there and we can fall in there and I'm asking you, please, let's not be there. Let's not be there at all. Let's step out of that secondary worldly way of doing things. And what I hope happens is not you say, hey, you should come to my church. The worship is amazing. But instead, we would be able to say, hey, you should meet Peter. He's an awesome guy, and I think you guys would really resonate. And he loves Jesus, and I think he has some good things that that he could share with you. Or, hey, I think you should meet Katie. She really loves kids the way I hear you love kids. You ought to hang out with her. She's pretty amazing. This is what God wants to show off, is you as children of him as witnesses of him. He doesn't want to show off Sunday services. Now, I'm not saying we won't do them to the best of our ability. And I'm not saying we won't make them worth coming to. But please, with me, let's not be motivated by sitting seats to watch excellence, but rather to be changed and to have the opportunity to worship God in spirit and in truth as we gather. The best way I can say it is we get together on Sundays to host God, to be with us and embrace us as we embrace him, and to change us as we open ourselves to him. I want to host the Holy Spirit when we gather in his name and and nothing else. That's the goal. Yeah, amen? Yeah. Yeah, let's pray. Just going to take a little bit of silence. Father, thank you for a completely new way to live. I'm so glad that I'm free from trying to keep rules. Got an entire nation and two million people proved it, and I proved it in my own life that that doesn't work, that giving me rules is not ever going to work. And I thank you, Jesus, that that day is gone. And Father, I thank you that you've given us what we really need and that is simply you and your power and your presence and your goodness and you've put it way down inside of our souls in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we want to embrace the Spirit more and we want to feel that capability and that appetite that wants to do amazingly good things and that believes that together as a community we can indeed do things that make people go, wow, that is so good. That's the way it should be. That's what friendship should look like. That's what a a college student should look like. That's what a family should look like. That's what a mom should look like. That's what children should look like. God, we want to be those people. So thank you for opening the door. God, I thank you for this church and for how well-formed they are already. God, I, 
when I came here, I was so overwhelmed by the goodness that exists here, the hospitality, the kindness, the gentleness that exists. And I praise you, Father, for the foundation that you've given us already. And, and I ask you to take us forward, God. We want more. We want to be more hospitable. We want to be more confident. We want to be more like Jesus wherever we go. So, Father, lead us. Jesus, you are the shepherd of this church. You are the pastor of this church. And we invite you to lead boldly and clearly and tangibly in our lives and as we gather in your name. So, Jesus, take us forward into new kingdom and new covenant. Let us live eternal life now, not just for ourselves, but thank you, but for others who need to see the hope that there is in one who follows you, who belongs to you, who can say, I am a child of God. More of you, Father, in Jesus' name.